This is YGTV and YG One-on-One, -on -one, sponsored by Right Now Media at Work, Flex Scripts, and C12. I'm your host, Paul M. Newberger, CEO of the Young Guns Movement. Today, we're on set right here at Serendipity Labs, going one-on-one -on -one with Christine Hilmer, president and CEO of the Restaurant Association of Wisconsin. On YGTV, we bring action-oriented entrepreneurs and free thinkers to the stage so we can be inspired, informed, and better understand how we can grow by breaking the rules of business. This show, it's a long-form sit-down with a CEO, business leader, or luminary to learn how they got there and what they can teach us. For more content shaking up the business industry, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and don't forget to listen to our podcast. Today, we welcome Christine Hilmer, President and CEO of the Wisconsin Restaurant Association. Welcome to the Young Guns Podcast, bringing together entrepreneurs and business leaders that break the rules and challenge conventional wisdom. Thanks, and enjoy the show. In three, two, one. On today's episode of YG One-on-One, -on -One, our guest is Christine Hilmer, President and CEO of the Wisconsin Restaurant Association. Christine, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So the number one most important question, <laughs> how much food did you bring being associated with restaurants? I'm starving right now. Unfortunately, I didn't bring any, but I can really hook you up. I know a lot of great restaurants in the area. I'm sure you do, and I'm going to have to fire my producer. I thought that was part of the deal here, but that's okay. We'll keep moving on. Um, let's talk about restaurants for a little bit here. Have you always enjoyed working in the restaurant business, or where did this passion for what you do come from? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, my background isn't in restaurants, believe it or not. So I run the Wisconsin Restaurant Association, and my background is running nonprofits and associations. So this is my latest venture. I've worked with a lot of different groups, um, and each one has brought lots of different lessons that I've learned, and all of those lessons are really coming to bear for, with my work with the WRA. I've been with them um, just a little under two and a half years, so not an extended amount of time, but really have loved it, meeting restaurateurs. This is a type A personality, entrepreneur, hospitality-minded industry, and it's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah, and I, I can't tell that you're passionate about it. That, that didn't come <laughs> through at all in your answer, which is very exciting. So talk to me a little bit about nonprofits. Uh, has that been something that you felt called to do for a while? What is it about the nonprofit world that you like so much? So the great thing about working with associations is you really get a chance to make a difference. And you make a difference to a lot of people, whether it's to an industry or a professional individual. Regardless of where you are, there's a lot of things that you can do to really help them progress in their professional life, help their business grow, help them navigate the um, advocacy world and, and all the regulations and all the laws that are happening. But helping a lot of people is really the, the thing that is common um, across all the associations that I've worked with. Yeah, and, and where did this love of helping people come from? I mean, have you always kind of been that way even growing up? When, when did you start realizing you had this affinity for helping people and, and touching lives in the process? 
So it's really interesting when you talk to other association professionals, nobody grows up wanting to be an association executive. You, you somewhat fall into it, and, and I did as well. Um, but I can really go back in my, my high school years. I was part of an organization called Job's Daughters, and it was a youth organization that was really about helping young women um, understand leadership, uh, public speaking, organization, helping people, bringing people together, and so on. And a lot of what I do today and over my almost 30-year um, career, has I can link back to my experiences there, that it's really about um, helping people and organizing and, and making sure everybody's on the same page and those leadership skills really come to bear on a daily basis for me. Yeah, I mean, you, as you said, you've, you've done a lot over the course of a 30-year career. You've achieved a lot, and we're certainly going to get into that here in a little bit. Who would you say growing up were some of the biggest influences in your life, be it uh, family members, non-family members? Who really helped make Christine Hilmer who she is today? So I can really say that it was my parents. My parents um, taught me a lot about honesty, integrity, hard work. Nobody gets anything handed to them. You achieve things through that hard work and through what you do. And my, my parents were always very hardworking in anything they do, whether it came to something they're doing in their personal life or in their professional life and so on. And those lessons have really come true and I take them to heart now. And, and I also think that honesty is one of those really important things that, that my parents instilled in me, that it's, it's important to be honest and authentic and, and build those relationships in a way that it's based on how you feel and what you're observing, not on something false. And so my, my parents have been um, just great examples to live by. My, my dad, unfortunately, has passed, but my mom is still here. And even to this day, you know, I look at how she um, carries herself and, and the relationship that she's had and, and I still learn from her on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, that's outstanding. And one of the things that we love on this program in particular, YG one-on-one, -on -one, is we love a good story. So you talk about how your parents have modeled the behavior of hard work, how they demonstrated hard work. Not even so much talking about it, Christine, work hard, but living that. Can you tell me a story of maybe seeing your parents um, exhibit that trait of hard work and, and exactly what that did to you, the kind of impact that had on you? So, so I can really relate it back to my dad as, an, as a great example. So I grew up one of three girls. So I have two sisters, uh, no brothers. Uh, and my dad was a farm boy, and he was a farm boy at heart. And you know, he would, um, in fact, I can tell a story that when they built their house um, on the farmstead, um, just because he could, he planted 150 tomato plants. Not that we ate 150 tomato plants worth of tomatoes, but it was really because he could. But growing up, my dad never let us girls, like, well, you can't do that, you're not a boy. It's like, okay, you're gonna come out here and you're gonna help me chop this wood. You're gonna get out there and you're gonna mow the grass. You're gonna get out there and you're gonna do all these things. My dad never let the fact that we were girls um, ever get in the way of hard work, and we were expected to contribute. We um, had our social lives, of course, and we had all of our outside activities, but that never got in the way of what we had to do at home to contribute to the family. Yeah, what, what other traits would you say that you possess from your parents? Obviously, hard work certainly seems like that's right at the top of the list. What else did you get from your parents that have made you the successful professional that you are today? I, I think it's uh, authenticity. 
So my parents, you knew where you, you, where you stood with them. You knew what, um, what they were thinking. My dad was a bit of a jokester, and so he would always have a, a humor part of him and so on, but he was authentic. He never really hid who he was. He was proud of where he came from. He was proud of his background. He worked really hard, and I think he instilled that in uh, my sisters and I, and it's not just me, that you know that often being an authentic person is really important because you that will come out in your actions and when you say something and your actions don't matter or match I think that there's a disconnect then. And so it's important to understand that how you portray yourself, how you model yourself, how you're authentic is really important. And I got that from the best role models that I know, and that's my parents. Yeah, that's outstanding. And I would totally agree with you that having an authentic leader, an authentic organization, that is probably one of the best virtues that a company can possess. If you look at authenticity, would you say that authenticity is an abundant supply? in the business community today, or do you think that might be lacking a little bit, just based on what you've seen and what's out there in the world today? I, I certainly think that there are some folks that do absolutely have authentic pe uh, personalities and the way they run their businesses, but I think there is a lack of it in a lot of respects. Um, people uh, act how they think they should act, not how they necessarily should react. And, and what I mean by that is it's really important to do the right thing, even though it may not be the easy thing to do. And part of that is knowing the right thing, uh, knowing your priorities, and then acting accordingly, and being authentic in, in those relationships and those conversations. It, it's one of those things that I don't, I don't think is as common as it should be. And in your humble opinion, why is that a bad thing? What, what, what are the risks, not, not even so much for the organization, let's just say for the individual, for the individual leaders per se. Why might it be bad for me personally if I'm not being my authentic self in the workplace? I think that you're putting out a false sense of who you are, a false sense of your values, and a false sense of how you're approaching things. Um, certainly there's a strategy involved in any, any day in business, and you need to follow those strategies to achieve your goals. But you have to do it in a way that's authentic back to your values and back to who you are and, and those values that you were raised with. And that, that's why I go back to my parents. I was raised with a set of values of honesty, integrity, um, working hard, and that authentic being. And so that's what I try to bring every single day. And when I know that I'm strong from those values, I know I feel that internal conflict. I know I feel like I'm not doing the right thing. And that's where I sometimes have to take the step back. It's like, okay, how am I approaching this? Why am I feeling this conflict in myself? And that's one of those things that I can check myself. It's like, okay, this isn't really uh, feeling right. And so I need to check myself to then change my approach. Yeah, kind of your, your north star, your internal compass, as it were. And I would agree, that's a vitally important thing for any leader to have. I know uh, we talked about associations and nonprofits. Let's just dive right into that. Why are associations so, port, uh, so important in the business community today, either for people to join, for people to be a part of, for people to take advantage of? Why associations, Christine? 
Well, it's a fascinating part of business that there is an association for everything. And a lot of times there's multiple associations for everything. But what associations do is it provides people who have common interests an opportunity to get together to talk about common issues pertaining to their business or their profession. Um, and again, there's lots of different um, associations. The Wisconsin Restaurant Association allows restaurateurs to get together and talk about the things that affect their business, to talk about what we need to do to help them survive. And it provides them a platform. And one of my jobs as a leader of the WRA is to then take those ideas and take those needs and help advocate on their behalf half at the local level, at the state level, and at the national level. Associations also set standards. We're part of a wide group of folks that work on food safety and um, how restaurants should be run and operated with public health departments and so on. Other associations have certification programs. So, so there's a lot of things that associations, to, that they do, that people aren't necessarily aware of that all the standards that you see, um, the laws that are changed. You know, you might call it special interest groups, but who other than, in my case, restaurants, would can relate to lawmakers on how the policies they want to put in place, how they affect business, and how they will or won't work? Who better will know that than the people on the ground? And so that's my job, and that's, that's the job of a lot of associations, is be that go-between to make sure that those businesses are represented, so that their ideas are heard, and with a lot of our uh, legislators. There's also an education component to most associations, whether that's educating them on standards or educating them on the laws that are, are passed or um, the best practices within a field. Um, that's another big part of associations is really making sure that those industries are, are well educated on, on everything having to do with it. I used to work with the National Funeral Directors Association. And so that, that's another great example of funeral, funeral directors getting together with common purpose, with common um, interests and helping them educate on the best way to help their families and, and help their businesses grow and, and follow the standards that they need to do in a very technical field. So associations are really all around us and it's been, been a very powerful way for like-minded people to get together, to dialogue, to talk, and also share their stories. Um, the, especially in the restaurant industry, things have been pretty tough with restaurants. And we as a WRA have been trying to help our leaders and our members get together so they can share their stories. So that, um, because nobody understands better than a peer on what they're doing and they can share then, well, this is my approach and this is a best practice and this is how I've, I've gone about, especially during now in pandemic, you know, sharing those ideas and sharing those stories so that there is an understanding and also an empathy with other people in the same shoes. Yeah, when you, you talk about how disruptive the year 2020 has been to the restaurant industry, that's probably putting it mildly of all the various organizations and, and fields that have taken it on the chin. Our friends in the restaurant industry have really had it particularly hard. Can you describe a little bit about how it's impacted the restaurant industry based on what you're seeing, the conversations you're having. I mean, we can read it in the newspaper, we see it on TV, but for somebody who's living it in the trenches every day, just how has the pandemic impacted the restaurant industry and how are you helping organizations get through what is arguably the most difficult time in the history of restaurants? So broadly speaking, restaurants have been brutally impacted by this. 
Um, you know, of course, very early on in that March and April when the first shutdowns happened, we were the first industry to be shut down. And part of it was um, we didn't know how the virus was acting. And so um, indoor dining was completely shut off across this country and even in Wisconsin. And um, then they were slowly able to reopen in some way, shape or form. The, the great thing that I observed with uh, restaurateurs is despite the fact that they may have lost 50, 75, some people 90% of their sales a lot of them have been able to turn around and be innovative and be entrepreneurial and say, okay, I can't do my business the way I normally am able to do it, but I can pivot to try something else. And that's where the connectivity for associations come in, that they can share those stories that um, one restaurant might say, okay, I'm going to now, I can't do indoor dining, so I can do meal kits to go. So I can feed my family for, and I can order it from my restaurant. You know, whether it's an Italian dinner with the lasagna and the breadsticks and the and so on. I can go. You know, my customers can come and pick it up, and they can feed their family at home, or they might partner with an, another business. So, for example, I know of a, a couple restaurants that they partnered with a craft brewery or a distillery, so they could get some of that great um, distilled spirits or beers or whatever, and do a food tasting and so on. And they can maybe do an, an online taste or a pairing, that that was an experience. Um, that's the one way that our industry has pivoted is to try to figure out ways to have some of those experiences without necessarily being in the restaurant. Now, speeding forward a little bit, we've learned a lot about the virus and how it has impacted um, individuals and businesses and so on. And the one discouraging thing that I'm seeing is Restaurants who have been following all the safety protocols, there is no study that is showing that restaurants are super spreaders of the virus. Especially those that are practicing what they're supposed to be doing, whether it's social distancing of the tables and the mask wearing of their staff and so on, they're not super spreaders, but yet a lot of them are still closed down. Um, in Los Angeles, as an example, when they did their ban uh, right around Christmas time of indoor and outdoor dining, their tracing indicated that restaurants were a source of 1.3% of the spread. Government offices was 7%, but yet restaurants were closed inside and outdoor dining. Um, other example, Michigan, very similar statistics. I think their tracing to restaurants are like 3.4%. 3, 3 not a significant um, source of the spread, but yet Michigan restaurants are still closed down. And I guess, why do you think that is? I mean, if, if, if we've got statistics to show that restaurants aren't super spreaders, in the case that you said, I think it was California that you used, yeah. restaurants are about 1%, the government entities are 7%, yeah. yet the government's still going. Why do you think that restaurants are bearing the brunt of this? Are they just an easy target or what is I, it? I think they're an easy target because the, the biggest spread is private parties, um, things that are happening in your home uh, because your guard is let down, that people are not necessarily practicing social distancing, they're not masking wear. And I'm not suggesting that that happens. That's not where this conversation is going. That has to be a personal decision. But it, for the government, they can control restaurants they can't control what you're doing in your own home. So it's one way to do it. 
and um, it, it's just been really tough. Um, and that's one of the things that we advocate, going back to why uh, associations are, exist, is we're trying to tell that story to our legislators and to the public health officials that, look, we need to find a way to balance public safety but also with the economic reality that there are businesses that have been impacted in a huge way. Another thing that I talk about in the impact of restaurants is it's not just an individual restaurant. There's a ripple effect that we need to consider. You know, certainly there's the ripple effect to individuals and mental health and all that, but for a restaurant, you have the restaurant owner and their family, and you have their staff and their families, but you also have that main street business and support system that's affected. You have all the suppliers that are affected, whether it's the manufacturers of the, the stoves and refrigerators and so on, or the farmers that are you know, growing the food and the produce and the milk and, and so on, or even the other manufacturers that are manufacturing the cheese, as an example, in a restaurant. There's a ripple effect happening in the economy that is immense. Uh, a startling statistic that, I, that we have is that nationally, 40% of restaurants are at risk of going out of business right now. In the state of Wisconsin, the latest survey data we had, which was in December, 37% of Wisconsin restaurants are at risk of going out of business right now. And 46% are, are considering temporarily closing until this is over. And I really fear that that 46% isn't going to be able to reopen. So then when you think about and consider that whole ripple effect that I was talking about, that it's that, that family and that owner and then their employees and then Main Street and then the suppliers and the farmers, that ripple effect is immense. You had talked about advocating on behalf of the restaurant owners, and I'm sure they feel very fortunate to have a voice such as yours speaking up on their behalf. As you're having these conversations, as you're advocating on their behalf, are you more optimistic that your advocacy is working? Not so much Christine personally, but this is uncharted territory. You can throw all the stats and figures that you want, but people are really emotional buyers as opposed to logical buyers. Are you pleased with the progress that you're making from an advocacy perspective, or uh, is there some frustration in the pace of change you're hoping to see? There's certainly some frustrations, but there's also glimmers of hope. So it's, it's a situation, it's three steps forward and two steps back. Um, I know that around Christmas, um, we had a, finally a COVID bill that was passed and signed by the president, and that financial um, relief is really gonna be a godsend. It's really gonna help some of those restaurants actually stay in business and be able to come back. Um, the, the, the bigger issue that I see outside of advocacy, though, is um, we need to get to a point and a confidence in the consumer that eating out is safe. I think that's the bigger issue that not only in the short term, the long term we're going to be facing. If consumers are not feeling safe going out to eat, they're not going to go. And at that point, it doesn't matter what restrictions there are. It doesn't matter what capacity limits are on a restaurant. If people don't feel safe or feel confident that they can go out to eat safely, they're not gonna go and that's gonna be the death knell to a lot of restaurants. Um, we know that um, mask wearing is one of those things that 65% um, of people wanna see people wearing masks and wanna see that, but yet not everybody will. And so we know customers will go into a restaurant, they will observe some things happening and maybe they might observe no mask. 
they're going to walk walk away and they're going to leave without people necessarily knowing it and they won't likely be back and so that that consumer confidence is a critical piece of one of an initiative that we actually created in December so we we knew this coming down the pipe that even though we might advocate for change that that consumer confidence is a big hurdle that we need to come um, come past and so we decided as an association to help build that confidence and we have a program called Ready to Serve Safely. And we received a grant from the Department of Tourism through the state of Wisconsin. Now we know that some people don't necessarily care about some of the safety protocols. We know that a lot do. And so we have restaurants who have committed to taking a pledge to following all the local, state, and national best practices and mask wearing and social distancing and so on. And so those consumers who are looking for that, we have a list of those restaurants who have taken a pledge that are gonna be following that and helping educate their staff and so on. And that's one way we're trying to help build that uh, consumer to confidence. And it's safediningwisconsin.com if anybody wants to, to look up that list. And we've got over 200 restaurants and growing every single day. Um, but that's another example of how associations are helping their constituents, and in my case, restaurants, um, with a problem, um, with a solution to a problem that they're having. Um, so regardless of what happens with the federal government and the, and the advocacy front, I contend that that consumer confidence is a greater issue to us than, than the regulations and so on. Um, those will be coming. We know the vaccine has just started and we know that it's gonna take a while to roll out and that's gonna help solve a lot of problems, but it's not gonna take, it's gonna take a while, but that consumer confidence is so key. Yeah, I would agree with that. And one of the most favorite conversations I had in the last couple of months is for Young Guns uh, in November, we had our fall summit event and I was very fortunate to, facilitate a panel where we talked about having success despite the pandemic. And those are two words you don't really hear in the same sentence too often, success, pandemic. I mean, you talked about 46% of restaurants are at risk of closing their doors forever. I mean, what a, what a tragedy that could be. And we have hundreds of thousands of organizations all across the country that are closing their doors forever as a result of the pandemic. And that's growing the longer that this drags on. But we had three individuals on this panel that weren't just surviving the pandemic. They were thriving in the pandemic and how some entrepreneurs are able to do that despite the world falling around all uh, around all over them is pretty interesting. Based on what you've been able to see from these restaurants in particular, the restaurants that are, I don't want to say doing extremely well, but the restaurants that are hanging on, the restaurants that are doing okay, the restaurants that aren't really at risk of closing anytime soon, what commonalities do you see with those restaurants or the people leading them where they're able to navigate these really turbulent waters relatively successfully? So I, I would, uh, with one caveat, so we know that there are parts of the state of Wisconsin that are not necessarily enforcing a lot of the protocols and so on. So I'm gonna take those out of the mix because they're able to, to ride out some of this in, in a way that others aren't as brutally impacted. But especially in the city of Milwaukee and Dane County, those are the two areas of Wisconsin that are probably the most closed or, or most restricted. Those that we're seeing success are thinking outside the box are partnering with other businesses, are looking at, okay, I can't do this, so what are my alternative ways of doing that? That innovative um, thinking, that entrepreneurial spirit is alive and well in restaurants. 
And, and those are the ones that I think are gonna be the ones most likely to succeed. And, and they're looking not only in the short term, but they're thinking, okay, how can I make these changes for the long term? It's not, I'm gonna make these short changes and then I'm gonna go back to how I did business in the past. They're always looking at new ways and different ways to, to succeed, but how they're gonna do that long term and not just short term. Yeah, so one of the phrases that I'm really getting sick of, I'm gonna say it just so you know what I'm Can talking it? about. Well, that's one of them, that's one of them, but new normal. Uh, you hear that all the time. I think some of the changes that are going on as a result of the pandemic are temporary, but I would argue some of these are going to be permanent. In your opinion, how has the hospitality industry or how will the hospitality industry change as the result of the COVID pandemic? That's a really good question. Um, short term, I think you're gonna see a lot of people adopting some of the innovation and changes that, that they have uh, put in place. So for instance, a lot of restaurants have done uh, curbside delivery or, or curbside takeout. So I can go to my, I can call my favorite restaurant, I can order my favorite meal, I can drive to that restaurant and they will carry it out to my, my car. I think that is gonna stay. Um, delivery, I think, is also going to stay. And, and these were trends that had already started pre-COVID, but it's accelerated and it's been a paradigm shift that we've seen in the market that I think you're going to see continue. Um, I also think that um, partnering with those on uh, that are near you and, and those that are working with you and so on, and I think there's a lot of relationships that have been built along the way as, as well, and I think those are going to stay. Long term, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how, how things will stick. Uh, because consumers also are looking for that new normal that I remember going to this restaurant and doing this and they're gonna miss some of those um, things that they used to experience and so on. So I think consumer demand is gonna uh, drive some of this as well. I also think that um, it's gonna take a long time for us to get past mask wearing and the social distancing and so on. We've been living with this virus now, what, you know, 10, 10 months or so. And so people's habits have changed. And, and that's the other thing that I see. So in the suburbs, for an example, they're not going downtown Milwaukee to eat and, and have some of those great dining experiences. They're staying more hyper-local. And so their eating habits have changed. Um, and. Anytime a habit change changes, it's not gonna go back to the way it was. Going to your comment about new normal, um, I, I think that's a bit of an oxymoron because change is inevitable, change is constant, and that means that normal is never new. Normal is a constant evolution and any business, whether you're a restaurant or whether you are a pharmacy or whatever, if you're not evolving with your technology, with your staff, with the practices, with your brand, you're never going to change and you, are, you will eventually die. I think the big constant that we've all learned is change is inevitable, change is constant. Sometimes there's a lot of change like right now, but if you go back to those times and you think that change isn't gonna happen, I think you're fooling yourself as a leader. Walk us through, for you personally, the worst moment professionally with respect to COVID. And I don't wanna say rock bottom perhaps, but there was so many changes, so many things 
going wrong on the uh, the early going of this thing. What was one of the worst days for you? And then how eventually were you able to push past that, overcome it, and get back to this really position of, uh, of confidence and exuberance where, you're, where you are right now? I can give you a date. Please. March 15th, 2020. That is when the state of Wisconsin and our, our governor put out our first safer at home orders. Uh, we actually were, uh, we had a trade show that was uh, going on the week prior. And we were the last trade show that met at the Wisconsin Center District in downtown Milwaukee. We are the last trade show that has been there. And um, I don't think any of us truly knew what that meant. And it started dawning on all of us that it meant that everybody who had all of their staff and they have all their supplies for, and the reason why, one of the reasons why I remember the date is because it was right before St. Patrick's Day, which is a big day for restaurants. They had all their food ordered, they had all their beer ordered, they had all of their celebrations set in stone, and then all of a sudden the governor says, nope, you can't do any of those things. You have to close down and you can't have those celebrations. And so, it, it, so the, the date comes clear because I knew it was right around St. Patrick's Day, but in the weeks that followed, the impact and really the devastation to not only the restaurant owners, but their staff that, you mean I lost my job? Can I come back in a week or two? Because back at that time, Safer at Home ends, well, we're gonna kind of slow things down for two weeks and then we're gonna open things up. Well, we still aren't even at that point now in January 2021. So everybody has had to, to grapple with that and mourn, and mourn the fact that there are some restaurants that have closed. That we have to mourn that there are jobs that have been lost. We have to mourn that, that people have done everything they can to survive as a business, but it sometimes isn't going to be enough. And so that's been just devastating for our industry. Um, we see those bright spots, though. We see those that have pivoted to, and here's that. Here's one of those uh, those is. words yep. um, to to try to do things that are different. Um, and restaurateurs have really been trying to do everything to help their, their staff. They, they look at their staff as family. They, they don't want to get rid of jobs and they don't want to um, do things that put them at risk or their customers at risk and so on. And you know, we hear on a daily basis the devastation and the toll that it has taken since you know, that, that mid-March date. Um, I know restaurateurs who have put their houses on the line to to get a to get a, a loan to be able to survive because this is their livelihood. Multiple generations of restaurants that are at risk of going out of business. It is truly devastating. And when I when I hear and I even say those statistics that of how many are at risk of going out of business, I think of the broader impact and that ripple effect and how that impacts the people. And and that's just heartbreaking. So what can we as individuals do to support the restaurant industry? Is it just as simple as going out to eat a little bit more if, if we're uh, maybe a little skeptical about wandering back because some people might not be comfortable in a situation like that? What can we do to support the restaurant industry and support all the good work that you're doing? Mm -hmm. So a, a couple of things. Even if, you, even if there is a reduced capacity at a restaurant, even if it's 25%, 
You still have 25% capacity and there are chairs and tables open and waiting uh, for you to be there. Um, and, and try to go to a restaurant, maybe not at the peak normal times. And what I say is um, we all love a Friday night fish fry. We all love the Saturday night prime rib, but there are other nights of the week that restaurants um, may be full at their capacity on those, on those two nights, but there are other times that they need your support. Um, curbside is so we talked about it before that I decide that I want to have my favorite lasagna dinner I can call it my favorite Italian restaurant and say okay I'd like to order this I'll be there when it's ready and you can bring it out to my car um, or delivery is is an option now I do have one caveat when it comes to delivery and, and this is this is my plea to helping the restaurant industry Third-party delivery in and of itself is not bad it, it is a um, it is something that's here to stay but we need to have restaurants be in the driver's seat, and that's pun intended on how food is delivered from their restaurant. There are some third-party uh, delivery systems that will take an old menu, old prices, they'll put it on their app, and people then order food through that app. The restaurant has no control over it. They have no control over that, well, we no longer make this. We have a farm to table, we have a seasonal menu, we don't have the ingredients to make. And the consumer then gets mad at the restaurant because they, they can't have their favorite dish, but they may not have the ingredients for that. Or the prices may have changed and so on. And, and it's a problem that we're grappling with and long-term advocacy-wise, we need to make sure that there is a relationship between the third-party deliveries and the restaurants. The restaurants need to be able to be in control of how their food is delivered and delivered in a way that's safe and delivered in a way that the food is safe so that it's kept at temperature, that it's not um, been sitting on a counter or in somebody's car for 45 minutes. So those are all things that we're working on with the delivery system. So to help restaurants, my advice is to go to their website or call them directly if you wanna have delivery. They can tell you the way to do it and the way to do it safely. There's a lot of restaurants who have also rehired staff and, and they are helping them deliver their food as a way to keep them employed. So um, again, the third party delivery in and of itself isn't bad as long as there's that relationship. Um, you can also do gift cards and gift certificates. Um, you can support them and let those owners know that hey, as soon as, as, soon as we can come in, we're gonna be there to support you. One of the things that I love about Wisconsin, and, and it's something that I really knew, but now has really come to the forefront, is that the restaurant industry is really a vibrant part of every community. It's, think about any celebration that you've had. A lot of times, whether it's a baby shower, or whether it's an engagement, whether it's your anniversary or it's birthday, a lot of times that's celebrated at a restaurant. If you're mourning somebody, people get together in a communal way to help celebrate their life. Um, a lot of times that's at a restaurant. And so restaurants are really the lifeblood of a lot of communities. And you look at that ripple effect of if they go out of business, think about those small town communities and what's lost there. We were talking earlier about my dad. So my dad was a farm boy growing up. And even um, when he was retired, or even when he was um, heading towards retirement, he never really truly retired before he passed. But 
he would get up early and he would go to the local dining because that's where he got the gossip. That's where he, that's where he had a social life. That's where he met a lot of peers and people that he talked with. And that's something he carried on um, for all of his life. I remember um, even as a kid, you know, I'd be sleeping in <laughs> and my dad would be off and he'd be at the local diner um, getting that gossip and meeting his friends and so on. And then he'd be home before I'm up. But that's the kind of thing that we know that restaurants do. It brings people together. And um, the food culture in Wisconsin is also vast. It's, it's not just about supper clubs, which I love, but there's a lot of food culture that we would be losing, you know, whether it's ethnic food and it's individual family restaurants and, and it's the third or fourth generation restaurants. All of that is, is at risk if we don't support them. Yeah, well said. And one of the things that I'd like your opinion on before we wrap up here today, I, th I think there's a a vast difference between two words, two and four. And, and I think some people go through life with what I call a two mentality. So this is what COVID did to me. This is what my boss did to me. How could she do that to me? And I think one of the problems with a two mentality is there's a bit of a victim mentality in there. You know, I, I had no control over it. If it was up to me, something else would have happened but this has impacted me for the negative. Now, obviously we're all human and there's stuff like that that is gonna happen in our lives. But I have found that some of the more successful people don't have so much of a two mentality as a four mentality. This happened for me. She did this for me. And now when you have a four mentality, it's like almost anything in life that happens to you is a blessing. It's a positive, even if right in the middle of the storm, it seems like how could anything possibly good come out of this? So for you personally, Christine, despite all the bad stuff that we talked about and all the challenges that have arisen, what has COVID done for you? How are you a better person as a result of the pandemic, as crazy as that question may sound? So I think it has solidified um, some, some things for me in two ways. One is choices and one is relationships. So um, let me go relationships first. So one of the things that I've learned in, and relearned really is how important relationships have been. And maybe the typical ways of us getting together face to face has changed, but even touching bases and making sure and checking back with family and friends and colleagues and so on, we're working remotely. And so those relationships have changed in the workforce, but yet making sure that they remain steadfast and steady because we wanna make sure that as we go out of this, that those relationships remain strong. You know, my, my mom, my, I had mentioned that my, my dad has passed and so my mom is a widow. So we make sure that we touch bases with her because um, making sure that our relationship with her is strong is, is just as valid as my relationship with my colleagues, with my kids, with my spouse, um, with my friends, with people that I know, those relationships have become even more important. Um, and that's one of the things that COVID has done for me. The, the other thing is choice. And, and what I mean by that is, yes, we can dwell on the fact that this sucks. <laughs> Let's just be honest. The impact of COVID has been brutal. But we can also choose how we react to that. And, and that's one of the things that I've personally learned, that I'm choosing to look at the positive. I'm choosing to try to figure out how I can help. 
I'm choosing to try to figure out the best way forward. Um, sometimes that positive choice mindset really helps you, um, you know, there are certainly times that, that I fail. There are certainly times and, and situations where I'm like, oh, the GI could have done that a little bit better, but I can choose to learn from that and I can choose to then move forward in a positive way. And so I think that choice and your mindset is as critical and really has come home to me because I could certainly say I could dwell on the negative and I can dwell on the brutal impact on restaurants and, and all the, the heartbreaking stories that I hear, but I, I can also choose to say, okay, I can help them by doing this. I can choose to say, okay, let's figure out how to help um, with our ready to serve safely as a, as a consumer confidence, just as an example. So your mindset is a choice and you can cho choose to dwell on the negative, but you can also choose to try to look forward and look positively in not only your life, but also in your, your, how you impact others. Some good wisdom packed in there and some good life lessons for all of us. And as a person that loves to go out to eat, as a uh, foodie in my own right, I know I'm speaking on behalf of not just myself, but a lot of other individuals out there who love going out to celebrating. Uh, we're very appreciative of your efforts, Christine. I, I have no doubt you face dark days. I have no doubt some days you probably wondered, what the heck did I sign up for? <laughs> but to have you advocating on behalf of an industry that we all love, to have you advocating for those individuals and family members that have been so drastically impacted by this, we appreciate it. Your, your, your work is meaningful, it's important, and we really appreciate you stopping by to, to share some of this insight with us. It was a wonderful conversation and I personally learned a lot from it. Awesome, well, well thank you. It, it's um, important for me to, um, with the WRA, is to be able to tell our story and, and thank you for that opportunity. Um, we need to be able to tell the story of how restaurants are being impacted and the things that they are doing to try to overcome it, but also the, telling that story to the broader in the advocacy world that um, what they're doing matters, what they're doing has an impact, and we need to figure out a way to help keep people safe, but also keep family-owned businesses alive. Right. It's important. Well, you're making me hungry just having this, so I might have to go stop at a restaurant on the way home. I know a but few. I'm sure you do. Well, thanks again, Christine. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Christine for sitting down on set right here at Serendipity Labs, sponsored by Right Now Media at Work, Flex Scripts, and C12. We want to feature the CEOs and executives that inspire you. Let us know who you'd like to see by connecting with us on our website or various social media platforms. And make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and don't forget our podcast so you don't miss a single episode of YGTV. I'm your host, Paul M. Newberger, CEO of the Young Guns Movement, and we'll see you next time.